Welcome to Nutrition for Mortals, the podcast that says life is too damn short to spend your time and attention worrying about your food choices. So let's take a deep breath and then join us, two registered dietitians and friends, as we explore the world of nutrition with a special focus on cultivating a healthy and peaceful relationship with food. My name is Matt Priven, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and the best dietitian on planet Earth, Jen Baum. Hey, Jen. Hey, Matt. And just a quick reminder, if you're enjoying the show, maybe think about telling a friend. And if you have an idea for the show, you can always email us at nutritionformortals at gmail.com. Some of our full-length episodes have actually been listener requests. So if you think you have a good idea for us to talk about, send it in. Definitely. Are you excited to talk about vitamin C today? Oh, I'm so excited to talk about vitamin C. But before we get into it, I feel like you have to explain why we titled this episode Vitamin C Friends Forever. (laughs) Not everyone graduated high school in 2004 while awkwardly dancing to the song Graduation parentheses friends forever by vitamin C. I mean, you actually had to explain this to me because I know that song friends forever. I remember it very well, but I had no idea that the artist who sang that song was vitamin C. Really? No Gosh, idea. I'm so, di- I'm so disappointed. Do you want it? You want a little taste to bring you back? Okay, so yeah, I mean, that's that's the song. That is the song that has now made it into one of our podcast episode titles. Do you have any specific memories hearing that? Can you can you give us a little taste of uh, like high school dance era, Jen? Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I think we can all remember being in our high school gymnasium, slow dancing in just like a very slow circular motion with somebody, arms kind of like around resting on their shoulders. I mean, that kind of deal. It's just like complete panic of where do I put my hands? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, all right. Let's talk about vitamin C. What do you think? Yeah, I think we should. And so tell us, what are we going to be talking about today? Yeah. So I want to tackle some questions that I think come to people's mind when they think about vitamin C. And so things like, do you need to take vitamin C supplements to prevent getting sick or to help you get over a cold? You know, do those airborne and emergency tablets actually do anything? And, you know, when it comes to vitamin C from our food, what do we actually need to concern ourselves with and what do we not have to worry about? And, you know, we're going to do this the way that we do it here at Nutrition for Mortals, which is we're going to tell some stories. And there are some fascinating plot points along the way in the story of vitamin C. So we're going to be talking about guinea pigs, bats, seafaring explorers. We're going to talk about cocktail recipes. We're going to talk about kooky scientists. So there's a lot to the story. So so stick around, everybody. Can we just fast forward to the cocktail part? <laughs> it's 9.20 in the morning. That's right. Can you okay. chill out? Right. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Why don't you start maybe by telling people in the most basic terms, what is vitamin C? Yeah. So definitely good to define what a vitamin is, right? Like a vitamin is simply some 
molecule, an organic one, that our body requires that it can't make itself. So we call it essential. We can't live without it. We have to get it from elsewhere. And almost always that's from our food. And in the case of vitamin C, that molecule that we're looking for is called ascorbic acid. And so when you hear vitamin C or ascorbic acid, they mean the same thing. And so there are a whole host of chemical reactions that happen in our body that require ascorbic acid. And so we need it and we're not making it ourselves. So we have to go out and get it in the world somewhere. Okay. That's a great summary. And so what do we do specifically with vitamin C or what does our body do with vitamin C? Yeah. So we use vitamin C for a lot of stuff, but I'm going to tell you two of the big ones. So the first one is it helps us produce collagen and that's a really big deal. So collagen is really important. It's kind of the main thing holding our body together. And so, you know, when we have a wound and we need to heal that wound, vitamin C is involved in, you know, producing the tissue that will heal the wound. And when we don't have enough vitamin C, well, we'll get into that in a bit, but, you know, we, we aren't able to heal wounds properly. And, you know, the integrity of our connective tissue isn't there. And the other big role of vitamin C is as an antioxidant. And so I'm sure people have heard the term antioxidant before, you know, when they think about blueberries or different foods that are often labeled quote unquote superfoods, you know, it's because they have this big antioxidant content. So if I may, in the simplest terms, what is an antioxidant? Can I, can I go into that or is that too boring? No, I think you should, because I think that this is something that, well, let me say it this way. I think the term antioxidant is something that people hear all the time, particularly like in the health and wellness space. But I find that people often aren't like 100% clear on what exactly an antioxidant is. So why don't you, yeah, do a, like a super quick definition of an antioxidant. Sure. So it's, it's an antioxidant. So there's also oxidants. So oxidants are these molecules floating around our body. We also call them free radicals. And it's a very cool molecule name, but sadly they, they aren't very radical. <laughs> they do some bad stuff. So when we have a lot of oxidants or free radicals in our body, you know, they bounce around looking for an electron. They're like, they're lacking an electron. So they kind of bounce around going, do you have an electron? Do you have an electron? And when they don't get the electron they need to like feel complete, then they can actually cause some problems. So they can collect in our tissues. Um, they can mess with other molecules and screw them up. But if we have antioxidants like vitamin C, vitamin C can come in and go, hey, I've got an electron to lend you. Would you like an electron? And they go, yes, I'm complete. And then they stop like haunting us and and screwing up our health. So antioxidants that we get from food, you know, they give electrons to these free radicals and they basically neutralize them. So they aren't causing harm to our body. And vitamin C is a very powerful antioxidant that's very important in our health. Yeah. I always think about antioxidants as just helping to prevent the cellular damage that can be caused by oxidants, kind of in the simplest terms. And so- Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think the other thing that you kind of touched on a few minutes ago is that we can't make vitamins and we can't make vitamin C. And so what happened in the course of our evolution? Was this just something that kind of randomly occurred and we lost the ability to make or synthesize our own vitamins? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I think this is so cool. I love the idea of vitamins and how there's these things that we need that we lack in our body and we have to kind of go out and piece them together. And it's so fascinating to me that, you know, we just figured out what a vitamin is like a hundred years ago. So like, no, like 
in evolutionary history, like yesterday, we figured this stuff out, but we've had to find these compounds out in nature for our entire history. It's just like this, this puzzle piece that we're, we're looking for out there from our food. And in the case of vitamin C, there was a point in history when we could produce our own vitamin C in our bodies. And so yeah, I've got a riddle for you. Ready? Yep. What do you, bats, guinea pigs, and humans have in common? I have no idea. <laughs> we all can't make our own vitamin C and we need to get it from food. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because actually almost all animals do make their own vitamin C still. Humans, guinea pigs, bats, you know, we're some of the few exceptions on earth. Isn't that, isn't that kind of crazy? It is. It is. And I, it makes me kind of wonder why bats and guinea pigs and us, like why not like other maybe cooler animals like a tiger? (laughs) Well, tigers make their own vitamin C. Dogs are doing it. Cats are doing it. Elephants, cows, rabbits, you know, plants do it. Plants obviously make their own vitamin C because we, we eat plants and get it from them. Yeast make their own vitamin C, but, but we can't do it. And and also guinea pigs. (laughs) And, you know, like I said, it wasn't always this way. So humans, well, I should say our primate ancestors could synthesize their own ascorbic acid. You know, it wasn't called vitamin C because it wasn't a vitamin that we just made ascorbic acid in our body until 61 million years ago. Wow. And so it's been a minute. It's yeah. been a minute for sure. Guinea pigs uh, held on longer than we did. They lost their ability to synthesize ascorbic acid 14 million years ago. Uh, but but yeah, we we lost we lost this uh, skill. I kind of love that you had to learn about the evolution of guinea pigs to talk about this today. I learned so much more about guinea pigs than I'm willing to talk about today. To be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> Okay, so we lost the ability to make vitamin C millions and millions of years ago. And in your research, did you find out what happened and how that happened? Was this just like a random mutation and we lost the ability or did something else happen? Was it like a slow evolution over time? Yeah, great question. So yeah, you're spot on. It was very likely a random mutation and it affected a very specific gene called the gulanolactone oxidase gene. And so that's also called the GLO gene. And this gene codes for an enzyme that catalyzes actually the last step of the vitamin C synthesis pathway. So our body was able to do this whole pathway and create vitamin C, but now we have like a broken piece of machinery at the last step in the assembly line. But we actually have all of that information in our DNA still, like the whole pathway could be there except for this one piece of broken machinery at the end of the line. And so we're not able to complete the process and make vitamin C ourselves. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And so this must have really kind of changed our nutrient needs, right? Following this mutation. I mean, what were the implications for us as a species at this point? Yeah. I mean, thankfully not all that much, because if you think about you know, 60 million years ago, primates were living in tropical locations where there's all this tropical fruit that is loaded with vitamin C. So, you know, there was this like redundancy, like we were eating foods with ascorbic acid, but also we could make our own. And so we were able to kind of make up the difference a little bit with vitamin C intake from food. And so I'm sure there was an adjustment period that we can't quite understand from the history, but, you know, 
we, this doesn't affect us uh, as significantly as you know it might have if we weren't surrounded by vitamin C rich foods. Can we talk about our favorite vitamin C containing foods? Yes. Okay. What is your like? Okay, give me one of your tops vitamin C containing foods. Kiwis. Okay. Uh, for me, grapefruit. Great choice. Thank you. Uh, can I go now? Yeah, you can. Um, bell peppers. Oh, really? Which yeah, which, actually, which color? Yellow is the highest in vitamin C. It has so much more vitamin C than an orange. It's it's loaded with vitamin C. Okay. I don't like bell peppers, so I'm going to move on and I'm going to say I like strawberries. Yep. Good choice. Good choice. I mean, kale and Brussels sprouts and broccoli, like those are actually good sources of vitamin C too that people don't think about. But, you know, think like tropical fruit. You know, I'm talking to the listeners out there. Of course, Jen, you're a genius. You know every <laughs> nutrient course, content of, of every of fruit every and food. vegetable. Yeah. So you don't you don't need this. But, you know, if, you, if you're curious, oranges, the tropical fruits that we mentioned, uh, grapefruit, kiwi, but like also papaya, guava, things like that, loaded with vitamin C, lemon and lime, which we'll kind of get to in the, the scurvy section of the episode. And then there are some sort of like you know, loaded foods like rose hips, which, you know, aren't very common thing to eat, but a ton of vitamin C in rose hips. Yeah. Okay. So we know that we have to be eating vitamin C containing foods, but what happens if we don't get enough vitamin C? I kind of know the answer to this question. So this is a little bit of a leading question, but I think it's important for people listening um, because it's an, an important aspect of vitamin and mineral deficiencies, right? So what happens if we don't get enough vitamin C? Yeah, well, I, hopefully I can give you some information that maybe you don't know today. So, yeah, there's always the risk that we don't get enough vitamin C. So, you know, that could be like a blight happens and, you know, messes with our crops and all of the vitamin C rich foods aren't there for us. And so there are plenty of situations where, you know, the food options with vitamin C could become limited or we just don't eat them. And, you know, now it's time to talk about scurvy. So scurvy is a vitamin C deficiency. You know, it's the name we give to the complex of symptoms that occur when we don't have sufficient ascorbic acid or vitamin C. And, you know, because like I mentioned before, vitamin C plays all these super essential roles in our health. You know, when we don't have enough, a lot of stuff goes wrong mm -hmm. and it gets pretty gnarly. So I'll describe what happens when you get scurvy. And if you're squeamish, like skip ahead a minute because <laughs> this is going to get pretty nuts. So, okay, let's say you get a vitamin C deficiency. It develops over time. We are able to store vitamin C in our body. So we've got a little bit of a, a backup there, uh, you know, some reserves of ascorbic acid. But you start to get fatigued. You might have some pain in your joints. And then, you know, you still aren't getting any vitamin C for a while. At this point, you'll notice some bruising around your body, actually bleeding under your skin your teeth can get kind of loose and even start to fall out. Ugh. Your your gums start bleeding. That's a really hallmark symptom of scurvy. Your hair gets super brittle and dry and actually kind of like coils up like a corkscrew. And then your legs start swelling up like balloons. Like I said, your gums are bleeding and then kind of the rest of you just starts bleeding. And so one of the weirdest parts of scurvy is you can have wounds from years ago that healed and they unheal. Oh. They just open back up and you are just bleeding everywhere. And then you get a, you know, you're super susceptible to like systemic infections and sepsis. It's just going to like take you down. So, you know, very potentially fatal for advanced scurvy that's untreated. 
Yeah, I feel like we just lost like half the people listening. (laughs) (laughs) No, they skipped ahead. Goodbye, everybody. And we're back. Welcome back. (laughs) Smart move, skipping that minute of the podcast. (laughs) So can I I transition away from from gnarly stuff to talking about our history of understanding scurvy? Yeah, please do. Okay, so the first descriptions of scurvy were actually in 1550 BC. So I'm talking ancient Egypt. So written in the Papyrus of Ebers, where they described the condition and they even recommended that sufferers of scurvy, they didn't call it that at the time, but but sufferers of this condition eat, you know, a bunch of vegetables, including onions. And onions do have some vitamin C. So it's not as potent as an orange or some of the other things we talked about, but you know, it'll do the trick. If you're experiencing scurvy and you eat a ton of onions, it'll help. So they kind of solved this puzzle. 3,500 years ago in ancient Egypt, but sadly that knowledge wasn't able to spread and scurvy was a problem that kind of kept reoccurring at so many points throughout history and kind of still occurs today in many ways. So over a thousand years after this finding in ancient Egypt, Hippocrates, (gasps) our buddy buddy. from you know, a past episode, he was also somebody who documented these symptoms. Unfortunately, he had no idea how to cure it and he deemed it incurable. He just kind of wrote down the, the the whole host of symptoms that people experience. But if you remember from our episode, he thought about things in terms of the four humors. And so maybe his sort of humoral take on medicine kind of made it difficult for him to diagnose this one. Isn't it like amazing too to th- to look back and say there were definitely points in history when, you know, something like a, just a very, what we would consider a very simple deficiency at this point, like they had no idea, like people would just die, right? Like Hippocrates yep. was just like, nope, that's it. You're dead. Like, it, and you know, it's shocking to me, but now of course we know a lot more. I just think it's incredible to look back at this stuff and realize how little we knew and how much that impacted people's health. It must have been so confusing when you didn't even have a concept of vitamins or that certain foods when not eaten sufficiently could cause these symptoms. I mean, food is so complicated. We eat so many different things. So even if Hippocrates, for example, were to ask what somebody's eating, it's so hard to pick out a deficiency of a vitamin when you don't have a concept for the term vitamin. Yeah. Well, I mean, food is still confusing now, right? You and I talk about this on the show all the time. Like understanding nutrition is very complex and we're like, you know, thousands of years later. And so um, looking back then it, yeah, I mean, overwhelming. Yeah, definitely. So when I say scurvy, what do you think the first like thing people think of? Like, what is the time period of scurvy that people tend to think of? Well, I I can only speak for myself. And I always imagine like a large boat sailing across the ocean and the sailors getting scurvy on long sea voyages. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about scurvy at sea, shall we? Yeah. So I want to describe the voyage of Vasco da Gama in 1497. So Vasco da Gama set sail from Portugal He's trying to find a passage to India from Portugal. So he goes all around the you know, southern tip of Africa looking for a, uh, a way to get to India. And on the way there, his crew started to develop some early signs of scurvy. And they called it Amalati de la Boca, which translates to curse of the mouth. Mm, okay. Referring to the, the bleeding gums that they were experiencing. And the food that they had on the boat was salted meat, 
hard biscuits, and beer. So no vitamin C to be found. They're really just eating salted meat, biscuits, and beer. Mm -hmm. So they are on the boat for a while. People are starting to feel the effects of scurvy setting in. And then mid-voyage, they make a stop. And they stop in the city of Mombasa in Kenya. And they were actually greeted by the king there who fed them well. And, you know, the meals they had included oranges, lemons, and, you know, what do you know? They start to feel better. And eventually they continue on their voyage, eventually making it to India. But on their return voyage, they spent a full three months at sea without stops. And, you know, they didn't stock up on oranges and lemons in Kenya. They, they kind of went on with their trip. And so things started to get pretty brutal during this three-month period at sea their vitamin C deficiency developed significantly. And when they finally made it back to Portugal, they had lost 116 of the 170 men they started with. Wow. Almost all to scurvy. Wow, wow, yeah. So, I mean, that's like almost the whole entire crew. Yeah, and there's a ton of these types of tales from the, you know, the 15th century, 16th, 17th century where explorers like limp back into port with 10% of their original crew thanks to scurvy. But, you know, for many, the, the cause of scurvy was unknown. People thought it was like a curse, you know. Mm-hmm. They thought it was a curse associated with just simply exploring the ocean. Or maybe it was associated with laziness or depression and they were sort of cursed as a result of that. Or there's a ton of theories. Was it poor ventilation in the, the sleeping quarters? Was it the dirty clothes they were wearing, were they were they infested with parasites? It was such a mystery and people were so confused. They didn't have this concept of vitamins, so they didn't even consider their food. And I, th- I think it's so interesting too. A lot of these boats brought animals with them. They would have like cats and dogs on board and the cats and dogs were eating the same food they were, but not experiencing the scurvy symptoms. So, you know, that kind of encouraged them to, not consider the food because they were thinking, oh, we're all eating the same thing, but only the humans are getting sick. So it must be something about what the humans are doing. But the sailors didn't know. The cats and dogs have functioning GLO gene expression, so they could synthesize their own vitamin C. This is not a vitamin for them. These cats and dogs are just churning out ascorbic acid internally, but humans can't do that. So, you know, it was this weird way that you know, they just didn't consider the food because it didn't seem to make sense at the time. Right, 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 right. And so, I mean, at this point in time, they're they're obviously noticing a pattern, right? So they don't know why exactly this is happening, but there have been, it sounds like, multiple, you know, sea voyages where whole entire crews have been kind of decimated by these symptoms. And so at, at what point do we really start to figure out what's going on? Like when is the link made between scurvy and vitamin C? Yeah, so science finally comes to the rescue in 1753. James Lind publishes a book called A Treatise on the Scurvy in Three Parts. I love calling it the scurvy too. It's very fun. (laughs) And so Lind actually conducted the first sort of controlled trial into scurvy. And so I'm going to tell you, briefly what he did, because it's pretty interesting nutrition history. So in 1747, he boarded a boat called the Salisbury in the English Channel. And he found 12 guys that were showing signs of scurvy. And he split them into six groups. So there's six pairs of men that each got a different intervention. 
for a couple weeks. So he was testing all these like old wives tales, like, you know, things that he had heard might cure the, the, the scurvy. And so two of the men got a liter of hard cider a day. Two of the men got a little drink of diluted sulfuric acid, which sounds awful. Mm -hmm. Two of the men got a shot of vinegar three times a day. Two of the men drank half a pint of seawater. Oh God. (laughs) Two of the men had this little paste of garlic and mustard seeds and radish roots. And two lucky dudes got two oranges and one lemon a day. So what do you think happened, Jen? Oh, I mean, definitely the people drinking seawater just thrived. (laughs) So not surprisingly, six days in, the guys with oranges and lemons were fully recovered and like nursing everybody else who was super hard up at the time because they were drinking sulfuric acid. And so Lind, you know, he, he saw the men get better with the oranges and the lemons. Sadly, he didn't think of this as a preventative treatment yet. He saw it as curative. He's like, okay, if you have scurvy, we can save you with citrus. But they didn't really make the link to, you know, this can prevent scurvy from happening. So it would kind of be another half century before, you know, the British started to routinely bring lemons on their voyage as part of their rations. And eventually they switched to bringing limes. And this is actually why Americans called the Brits, you know, limeys, because they always had so many limes on their boats. This is like my favorite fact. I love this fact. I love that like the reason that they were called limeys is because they just carried limes around in their pockets to prevent scurvy. (laughs) Yeah, just add a Y to anything and it's fun. Um, So this is the point in the story where we get to talk about cocktails. Oh, thank goodness. Phew, we're here. We've arrived. <laughs> I love when nutrition history and cocktail making come together. Two, two passions. I love a good cocktail, love nutrition history. So, you know, there was always this problem of keeping citrus from spoiling on long sea voyages. So, so now they know we got to bring some citrus with us. It's going to keep us from getting the scurvy. But, you know, they spoil when you're on a long trip. So, naturally, what do they do? They mix it with booze. <laughs> and so, in the mid 1800s, boats were often provided with Demerara rum mixed with lime juice in these big four-gallon jugs. So four gallons is huge. So it was like 15% lime juice. So basically all rum with like a little splash of lime juice in there, which is basically a daiquiri, right? It's like your first daiquiri. And it was like a mandatory ration, like all men on the boat must drink a liter of rum with a little lime juice in it every day. So I don't know what this did for productivity on the boat, but it's just so funny that that's like our first daiquiri is just like, you have to drink all of this rum and get a wicked headache and to totally suffer, but it's good for you. That's, this is what you have to do. Well, like, have we also now, I mean, is this the reason there were so many shipwrecks too? Like, have we just identified why there are so many shipwrecks just because everyone's like wasted on like rum and lime juice as they're navigating? Jen, correlation does not equal causation. We'll never know. We'll never know. (laughs) Sadly. We'll never know. Do you know the company Roses that makes like grenadine and lime juice? Uh, Yeah, I have roses in my house at all times. Also your middle name. That's right. That's exactly right. So Roses has been around for a long time. So in 1871, Roses patented a method for preserving fruit juices that allowed ships to carry well-preserved lime juice on board 
without having to pre-mix it with the booze. So before they would like, you know, mix up the rum and the lime and that was their way of preserving was simply mixing it with the booze. But now they could bring a jar of roses, lime juice, cordial. And when they were ready, they could mix it with some spirits. And so the spirit of choice became gin. And so when you mix lime juice cordial with gin, you get a gimlet. Mm. And so this is the the evolution of the gimlet. Thank, thank you, Scurvy. <laughs> well, and I mean, you and I have argued this before, but I love a gimlet, but I like a vodka gimlet, not a gin gimlet. Right. And everyone can hear how wrong you are. So we'll just move <laughs> on. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to get some support on the vodka gimlet. I mean, maybe we should make this into like a poll and just really see what the people say because, I mean, this is like a, a point of contention between you and I. Why do I feel so confident that people are going to side with the gin gimlet? <laughs> don't you want some juniper in there? Get some flavor. Come on. Um, okay. So at, at this point, people have really made the link between citrus and scurvy, but I'm guessing that they didn't really know why at this point in history because, you know, as, as we know, the word vitamin really wasn't in the lexicon at the time. And so when did vitamin C actually get discovered? Like when was it identified as vitamin C and vitamin C deficiency is the cause of the scurvy? Yeah, thank you. I'm glad we transitioned to calling it the scurvy. So in the early 20th century, we started to understand vitamins. So actually one biochemist, a man named Casimir Funk, one of the best names in history, honestly, Casimir Funk. I, I feel like we just found our band name. <laughs> so Casimir Funk, playing at a local dive bar near you, coined the term and proposed that all sorts of conditions could be attributed to a lack of these things he called vitamins. So he named vitamins and he, you know, he had this, this idea, maybe all the stuff we're seeing, all these weird symptoms could be a result of the lack of these vitamins. In fact, in one journal article in 1912, he proposed four separate conditions that he thinks were associated with a vitamin deficiency. He was correct on all accounts. Wow. He, he nailed it. And one of those was vitamin C. So he saw scurvy and said, something's missing. He didn't know what it was. Ascorbic acid hadn't even been isolated yet, but he knew just theoretically that this was likely to, to, to happen. And, you know, he got some pushback. People were like, Funk, you're crazy. We don't believe you. And so what he said was, Don't believe me just why. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, I love my podcast. It's so fun to do stuff like that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. We're going to have to cut out me laughing. We're definitely not cutting out any laughing. This is all in the show, baby. <laughs> um, okay, so we got Casimir Funk. He describes vitamins for the first time. So, okay, at this point in history, we know what vitamin C actually is. And so can we transition to talking about some of the modern thinking around it? I think it's really important to dig into this idea that vitamin C cures the common cold because I think when people think about vitamin C or taking a vitamin C supplement, usually one of the intents behind it is to either prevent or cure a cold. Yeah, totally, totally. And so we have to talk about Linus Pauling. So in understanding how we got to where we are today, Linus Pauling is the name you should know. So briefly, Linus was a brilliant American chemist 
and multidisciplinary scientist, a huge peace activist. He has two Nobel Prizes. His contributions to to science and medicine are huge. He kind of messed us up with vitamin C, though. So Pauling was really interested in mega doses of vitamins, and he wanted to see if big doses could lead to improved health or cure any diseases. And this was especially true with vitamin C. So his theory was that since we had this genetic mutation that prevented us from synthesizing our own vitamin C, we should take a ton of vitamin C to compensate, which to me like totally ignores that it's been 61 million years and humans have done pretty darn well, evolutionarily speaking, without the ability to make vitamin C. And there are some theories actually about why losing the ability to make our own vitamin C has its advantages for you know what we've been able to accomplish as a species. But regardless, in the 60s, Pauling started to himself take big doses of vitamin C. He would take about 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C every day to try to prevent colds. And you know, he felt like it was helpful for him. And he publishes a book in 1970 called Vitamin C and the Common Cold. And the book was really written for the public and it sold really well. People rush to pharmacies to buy vitamin C supplements. And, you know, it's and it's like the world's never been the same since. People still associate vitamin C with, you know, supporting their immune system in a way where they can just take a supplement and maybe prevent or treat a cold. Yeah, and can we just you know take a little bit of attention and talk about like mega dosing? of vitamins generally, because this is something that, you know, you and I still see people doing with frequency. And this is also something that I feel like is like touted in the wellness space. Sometimes it's like, here, take a, take a ton of supplements or take a ton of whatever vitamin or minerals. Like what are your thoughts on mega dosing generally? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating little area of nutrition that has some risks, certainly with toxicity And that's going to be different for different vitamins. So in the case of vitamin C, it's a water-soluble vitamin. So there's like less risk of toxicity, but certainly people who take big doses of vitamin C, you know, experience stomach upset, you know, they, they could feel unwell, but some people do quite well, meaning they don't have symptoms associated with mega doses of vitamin C. But, you know, like all things, there's a balance we're trying to achieve and, just as too little vitamin C is harmful, too much can be as well. And, you know, I'm not a big supporter of mega doses of vitamins because we just want to have the scientific research support a benefit to it. And, you know, there are some existing questions about what mega doses of vitamin C could be helpful for. That'll be really interesting to learn about in the coming years. But, you know, the science that we have thus far does not support the use of mega doses of vitamin C. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but let me turn it back on you. What do you think about mega dosing vitamins? Yeah. I mean, I I think our thoughts on this uh, align really well, like always. Um, And I think that, I think that there is potentially going to be some interesting research in terms of like high dose vitamin C application in the coming years. But you know, it's mega dosing is not something I tend to encourage or recommend. I mean, particularly for you know, the water-soluble vitamins like vitamin C, you know, a lot of times what happens is that if our body has enough of it, we're just excreting the excess out. 
through our urine. And so a lot of times when I have people come to me and they're taking like super ultra large, like B vitamin complexes and things like that, you know, I just try to remind them that like a lot of that isn't going to be going to use in their bodies because once we have enough of it, we just tend to excrete the rest. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, I, I think this, you know, story around Linus Pauling is so interesting, particularly because the narrative that vitamin C cures the common cold is still very pervasive. So tell me about what you see in the research. So I want to know, and I think our listeners probably want to know too, does vitamin C actually prevent or cure the common cold? No, it does not. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the, the, the scientific literature on this really shows that, you know, when we look at the larger review articles that take into account all the different studies that have been conducted, what we see is that, you know, after decades of research, vitamin C supplementation does not prevent the common cold in the general population. And it may have the effect of shortening the duration of the common cold, but the effect is pretty minimal on the order of like hours, not days where you're going to feel better much sooner. This may be less true for folks under extreme physical stress. They might benefit more from vitamin C supplementation. You know, I'm thinking like folks in the military doing a really demanding mission or like an Olympic level athlete doing intense training. They might benefit more in terms of their, you know, their immune support and ability to prevent and and, uh, get over a cold with vitamin C supplementation. But for the general population, for, for us, vitamin C supplements have not been a miracle cure for the common cold. And taking high doses of these supplements does not appear to give us super immunity. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it sounds like not a huge effect, but that is definitely not what companies like Airborne or Emergency are going to convince people of, right? There are a ton of products out there that, you know, tout themselves as, you know, the cure for the common cold or the way to never have a cold again. And so, you know, what does that mean for products like the ones I just mentioned? Yeah, exactly. Because those supplements like Airborne or Emergency, you know, they have other nutrients in there, but vitamin C is really the heavy hitter that they're looking at in terms of the immune support. And, you know, these companies have made a lot of claims over the years that the products help with, you know, treating the common cold or boosting your immune system. So actually, I'm going to play an ad from Airborne from years ago. So let's take a listen. It's that time of year when we tend to ignore the food pyramid, run on less sleep, no, 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 no. Too far. And let stress build to uncontrollable levels. It's still not straight. These are but a few of the hundreds of things that can wreak havoc on your immune system. Take Airborne to help keep your immune system strong. It's the one created by a school teacher. Yeah, so they're trying to say that this supplement is going to support your immune system, counteract the effects of other things you're doing that might be harming your immune system. And so in 2008, Airborne actually had to pay or agreed to pay a large class action lawsuit of $23.3 million for false advertising because you know they had this lawsuit brought to them saying, prove it. If you can treat the common cold and support the immune system in a way that you know lines up with this marketing effort that you have, show us the, the proof. And they didn't have research that they could point to showing that their combination of nutrients that was heavy in vitamin C could really be 
a cure for the common cold or an immune system support. You know, they still market these products as being an immune system support. And I don't know the fine print about how they're able to get away with that. But, you know, it's it's kind of complicated because vitamin C does play an important role in our immune system. The question is, do these supplements actually, on the whole, benefit people's immune system? And so it's an ongoing uh, discussion, but certainly these products are not a miracle cure for the cold as they often are marketed as. Yeah, I, I totally remember this 2008 lawsuit. I remember this Airborne lawsuit. I also remember, and you probably remember this too, just how big Airborne was for a while. Like I remember you know, flying and people being like, oh yeah, you know, try Airborne. Or I remember seeing people taking Airborne on a plane because it was like very much marketed as, you know, not only to like support your immune system and things like that, but like take it when you're traveling and flying because that's yeah. when you're at risk of getting a cold. And so, I mean, super clever marketing, I'd have to say from Airborne's perspective, because it was huge for a while. Totally. Yeah, definitely. And and I think emergency might be a little more popular. I don't know what, what the market looks like today, but they had a pretty good ad campaign with Airborne, you know, especially like the one created by a school teacher. And everyone's like, oh, kids are getting sick in school all the time. So school teachers probably have a good read on what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a great illustration of just how clever the supplement companies are just in terms of their marketing. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, you know, given that vitamin C supplements aren't super helpful for the common cold, what are our final takes on vitamin C. So what do people actually need to think about nowadays in terms of should they take a vitamin C supplement? Should they eat a ton of vitamin C containing foods? Like what are our kind of like final thoughts? Yeah, I think that it's actually important to be aware of what foods contain vitamin C and try to include them pretty regularly. I don't think people need to take a vitamin C supplement if they eat some vitamin C rich foods, like the ones we talked about earlier, I think that there are some people who have very limited diets or um, conditions that affect their ability to absorb vitamin C. I'm thinking like inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, or folks who have you know a history of gastric bypass surgery. You know, th- there are some more like niche conditions where you do want to take a supplement. But I think for the average person that likes some citrus fruits and bell peppers and things like that, you don't really need to worry about it. And you don't need to get super structured in terms of, you know, I have to eat a yellow bell pepper every day for my vitamin C. For most people, it's pretty easy to get vitamin C with a little intentionality. And, you know, this could be the kind of thing where after this episode, you put an extra couple bell peppers and kiwis in your, you know, your grocery cart. And, you know, that becomes a routine that helps you feel pretty proud of yourself for for meeting those vitamin C needs. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, there's a definite theme on the show and, you know, a theme when you and I practice that, you know, we, there aren't a lot of times necessarily where we feel like people need supplements, niche times for sure, or if somebody has a deficiency. But this is one where, like you said, I think if we just kind of, grab some vitamin C containing foods and don't stress too much about it. We just make sure we're eating a wide variety of different things. We're kind of good to go. Yeah, totally. I also want to take this opportunity to exonerate fruit juice. (laughs) Okay. So we have given fruit juice such a bad rap. I mean, it's, I think the anti-sugar army really came after fruit juice in conflating it with soda right? It's like, oh, it has so much sugar. How dare you drink orange juice Mm -hmm. or 
um, you know, grapefruit juice. I mean, it's a great way to get vitamin C. And so having some juice in the morning or mixing it in with your water or however you like it is a way to get a little bump of vitamin C. And it tastes awesome. Juice is great. Yeah. I mean, is there anything better than like a glass of fresh squeezed orange juice? I think not. No, totally. And I do want to say, and this might be a little crazy, is even after telling you that emergency and airborne doesn't cure the common cold and they got slapped with this class action lawsuit. I kind of like it. I kind (laughs) of like emergency. So this is not like hot takes. This is like confessions, really. Confessions. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I just embrace the placebo effect or maybe it's just like the effervescent tablet. I just love dropping it into a glass of water and it tastes pretty good. And it's just, you know, I don't drink it all the time, but when I feel like I'm coming down with something, I'm like, yeah, I mean, vitamin C is involved in the immune system. And maybe when I'm not feeling well, I'm less interested in eating as many fruits and vegetables. So it's a little bump of vitamin C I wouldn't be getting. And I'm not worried about the toxicity with a thousand milligrams of vitamin C. And yeah, just digging into the placebo effect. I don't care. I'll trick myself into feeling better. That's totally fine for me. What, what do you think? Yeah, I I actually take emergency too sometimes. <laughs> People are going to be like, what is going on? Um, yeah, I do too. I, I mean, not all the time, but like my husband particularly likes it and has it in packets. And I just, when I have a cold, like I love the raspberry emergency flavor. And I think it has to do with the fact that like, you know, when we, when we have colds, typically we just don't taste the same way. And yeah. so when I have like the raspberry emergency, I can really like taste it. It's like kind of sour, kind of tangy. And it just like feels good. And so, yeah, I mean, me too. Every once in a while, I have emergency as well. Be so funny if this whole episode was actually like some weird backdoor ad and we're getting paid by airborne and emergency. Right. Like all the kickbacks are just rolling in. Yeah. They're like, the science doesn't add up, but still we got to get to these people somehow. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, I hope we have made, you know, solid points around vitamin C and now you and I can just go ahead and take emergency, mix it in a glass and like be good to go. (laughs) All right. So I just have one more thing I want to say directly to you, Jen. Okay. You know, as our lives change, come whatever, (laughs) we will still be friends forever. (laughs) All right. I'll see you, Matt. All right. Peace. Nutrition for Mortals is a production of Oceanside Nutrition, a real-life nutrition counseling practice in beautiful Newburyport, Massachusetts, where we provide individual nutrition counseling both in person and online via telehealth. Feel free to learn more about our practice at OceansideNutrition.com. If you want to send in a show idea, you can email us at nutritionformortals at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at Nutrition for Mortals. If you're digging the show, tell a friend. Maybe give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.